The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. I am a realist. There's no way that I can be everything that he needs. Okay. <laughs> I just, I made peace with that a long time ago. And if he decides he wants to be with this woman? He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't leave. You sure of that? You're that confident? It has nothing to do with me and everything with the type of man he is, though. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Represent, and I'm your host, Aisha Harris. On today's show, I'll be chatting with up-and-coming filmmaker Nefertiti Nguvu about her intimate film, In the Morning, which is about the love life and friendships of a group of Black professional Brooklynites. But first, we're going to discuss Sofia Coppola's latest film, The Beguiled, a gorgeous Southern Gothic film depicting lust, betrayal, and an interesting take on the white female gaze— It stars Nicole Kidman, Kirsten Dunst, and Elle Fanning, and was released last week. When I saw it, I had many questions. (laughs) Namely, what's up with Coppola making a film set during the Civil War about Southern women and young girls holding a Union soldier hostage and not actually wrestling with the political and racial implications of that setup? Not a single Black person is seen on screen, a choice that is explained away by a line at the very beginning as, quote unquote, the slaves left. Writer Coria Tad confirmed my suspicions that this was a cop-out on Coppola's end and wrote a really great piece for Slate about how the filmmaker missed an opportunity to deal with all of those issues, which the original book and 1971 movie version starring Clint Eastwood did. And he's here to discuss it with me now. Welcome to the show, Corey. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, you have read the book and seen both versions of the movie. I have only seen uh, the two versions of the movie. I haven't read the book. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about the book first um, and if you have any background on that. Uh, and then we can delve our way into the movie and the way in which Sofia Coppola is not dealing with these themes of race in the ways that the uh, book and the movie, the original movie with Clint Eastwood did. Right. So the book um, was originally published in 1966. Uh, it's written by a writer named Thomas Cullinan, um, not very well known. And in fact, the book has bas- basically been out of print uh, since the original film came out in 1971. Um, and they just kind of re-released it uh, to coincide with this new movie. Um, I-, I was curious about the book just to, to kind of understand you know, how lurid this, the original source material was compared to the original film, which is very lurid, very kind of exploitation heavy. Yeah. Um, and what I discovered is that the original book, um, it's 
it's a bit more of a lurid take than what's in uh, Coppola's film, but it's actually quite a bit closer to Coppola's film uh, in tone than the original Don Siegel film uh, starring Clint Eastwood. And in, in terms of the, the kind of racial aspects of the book, uh, there's, there's a few interesting factors. The first is that uh, the way the book is told, um, you know, it's set in this school uh, with these, uh, uh, these, basically a group of women in a, in a girls' school. And the story is told from each of their points of view uh, in alternating chapters. Kind of, you know, if you've read Game of Thrones, it's sort of a similar, uh, similar situation. And uh, and in fact, there's there are two uh, black characters in the book. One is a, uh, a enslaved housemaid, and another is a teenage girl who's actually mixed race um, and is kind of hiding her. Uh, her parentage, although it's sort of an open secret. Um, and each of those characters get point-of-view chapters in the book. And, and so I found it especially interesting that, that Coppola decided not to include them. Right. And in the movie version, the 1971 version, Edwina, uh, the, the, um, the professor or the teacher at the school, she's I don't think they ever mentioned that she's mixed race either, and she definitely doesn't look mixed race. Um, so the the original movie also kind of sidesteps that. Um, mm-hmm. Although, of course, as as you mentioned in your piece, um, the 1971 version does have the uh, house slave uh, intact, um, and her name is changed from Maddie to Hallie. And I, so I, I actually watched this after having seen the the new beguiled and mm-hmm. yeah i was fascinated by like how well not so much surprised because as you mentioned like the exploitation sort of factor is in there this is right around the time of like uh shaft and all these other and and mandingo these movies that were set in this that were made in the 70s but like we're dealing with you know exploitation uh what we came to know as black exploitation many of those films were made by uh white directors uh in the way that this movie is and this movie like definitely does not shy away the 1971 version from race at all um and does it seem like that it, it, it was that was about comparable to the book or did the book delve even more so uh, than the 1971 version? Well, I would say the book dealt with it a little bit more delicately yeah. uh, because again, the, the tone is not uh, quite so extreme. Um, but I think both the original novel and the original film uh, deal with race and also the context of the war itself. You know, so the original film has a, you know, a few conversations about the state of the war and, and, uh, and there's a couple of conversations between Clint Eastwood, uh, Clint Eastwood's character and, um, Hallie, the, uh, the house slave in the film. And, and the book has, you know, it's set during the civil war. It's sort of inescapable, uh, in the book. Um, and the politics in the case of the enslaved character, it's, it's much more clear, um, and, and in both the book and the film, she's playing a character who's very, very keenly aware of her position in everything, uh, and in some ways uh, kind of creates a really interesting, uh, an interesting character in that she is above all of the games and deceit that's being played by the other characters. Um, in the case of Edwina, uh, in the book she's a teenager, and, and here they, in the original movie and, and in the new movie, uh, which I think 
basically takes that character from the original movie rather than the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, is sort of a composite character of two different characters from the book. Uh, but the major points of her arc are the points from the mixed-race teenage character mm-hmm. in the book. Um, so I'm not... I can't speak to why the 71 version took that character out or, or, or changed her race. But, uh, you know... Certainly, it's interesting to me that Coppola, having both sources, decided to opt for the way the film did it. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me the most while watching Coppola's film was that, yes, it was like it had the Southern Gothic feel and, you know, Colin Farrell's character, um, the Union soldier, is very clearly a Union soldier. They discuss it back and forth. But... it it also in many ways just discards like I feel like much of the movie could have been set at any time Um, it doesn't get as specific as the the movie did the movie the very first shot in the credits is is a is an old photo of Lincoln and then it like Mm -hmm. pans out and in the entire credits montage sequence is uh, images of the Civil War Um, and so I just thought it was really bizarre for Coppola to not engage really at all with that that history and and it made me wonder like why why didn't she just set it in a different time then or like not specify that it's a civil war like i feel like i would have been more okay with that if there were no black people in it than just (laughs) the slaves left yeah i mean it it, on that front i think that's where you and i share the same criticism and i think uh you know if you look at coppola's body of work um, her films are generally about sort of the same, you know, different plots, but sort of similar themes come up. Uh, this, this focus on, on particularly on uh, younger, uh, sort of privileged white women and, and the boredom of their lives and, um, and sort of the, the feeling that they're often trapped in those circumstances, even though they kind of have it good. Uh, so that's, that she probably watched the original film, I would imagine, and, and saw that as something that piqued her interest. And then, and then it's pretty clear from interviews that the other thing that was interesting to her was the aesthetic of the antebellum South. Um, right. She so calls it, it exotic, uh, which, you know, in the piece, like she's, she loves the exoticism of the Southern women and the Southern Gothic look. Right. Which is, I mean, you know, that, that's one, that's one word that you can definitely use, uh, for it, I'm not sure that I would, um, <laughs> but I think that that what it kind of comes down to is that she's not her in her film. She's not interested in politics. In in you know her adaptation of uh, Marie Antoinette, there's you know she basically takes the politics completely out of the film as well. Um, and and so in this case, I think you know the reason she made the movie because she was interested in that aesthetic and she was interested in some of those those kind of Based themes, but she wasn't interested in the politics, and she probably didn't feel, or she said as much that she didn't feel like she could do them justice. So she basically left them out, which I think is its own kind of injustice. Right. I mean, it's it, as you noted in your piece, the, the she also kind of did a similar thing with the bling ring a few years ago, um, which was also based on a true. Well, it was based on history or a true story in that case. Yeah, that one was based on a true story. Right. Yeah. And and with that, the, the bling ring, essentially, they were a, a group of teenagers like in California who went around robbing 
robbing houses and mansions. And one of the one of the teenagers was an undocumented immigrant. Um, and she was a uh, Hispanic or a Latina. And what I thought was interesting, she I couldn't find any clips or any um, quotes from her discussing that. And there wasn't really much of an uproar just because, um, you know, part of the issue, part of the reason why no one really said anything then was because there was a concern that her being uh, a person of color, would Sofia Coppola be able to, like, especially someone who was committing crimes, is that the best, is Coppola the best person to be dealing with that? And so she didn't, she didn't cast a, a, a person of, well, I think there's one Asian uh, character. Uh, or yeah, one, there is an Asian character in the film. Right, but there yeah. is no Latina. Um, so, but with this movie, um, she does use the excuse of, I didn't want to deal with that. Um do you do you did you buy that excuse with the bling ring and do you think that that um I I guess I worry <laughs> I I criticize her for not engaging with it but then I also worry well what if she did try to engage with it would the result would could it have been worse <laughs> I mean it's hard yeah, to tell I'm, but <laughs> uh yeah that's that's the the conundrum I mean Ira Madison the third wrote a great piece of the Daily Beast that was basically, from his perspective, you know, critical of, of her for using that cop-out and almost suggesting she might as well not have made the film, mm. but also saying that he rather he she cut out the, uh, the Black characters than, you know, portray them badly. Um, I'm not entirely, I, I don't completely buy into that, um, and I say that as like a white man, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but I feel like there's a degree of, um, it's sort of, if the job of of an artist is to, at least to a certain extent, uh, explore themes that are challenging, explore characters that are challenging, um, you know, it's incumbent on her if she's going to be telling this story, especially since, the source material includes black characters to at least make an attempt. And, you know, if the attempt doesn't go so well, then she can be criticized for that, but at least she made the attempt. She can't, you know, she can't wash her hands of it uh, in that way. And I think that, that it's sort of, um, it's easy and it's almost lazy to just say, you know what, I'm not going to deal with it. Um, I'm going to pretend like this didn't happen. And, and it's especially to me troubling uh, just because, you know, in the history of film, um, especially films dealing with the South, you see this a lot where filmmakers just aren't willing to deal with the reality of what was going on in the South. They're just not willing to do it. And, the, you know, continuing to make those kinds of movies, can, doing that gives the perception that, you know, maybe the South wasn't all that bad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think that there's there's a responsibility to history that she has, and I think that that again, just sort of an artistic. Uh, you would think as an artist, she would want to do something a bit more challenging, right? And even if she were wasn't going to cast any black people in this movie or depict any slaves, so when I saw this the Coppola version, I there's a scene in which the girls are all like working in in like the field and and you know, hoeing and tilling and all of that stuff. And I was like, huh, there's there's no indication that they are 
not used to doing this kind of work or they they resent having to do this work because like usually the slaves would be doing this work. I would think there'd be something like that. And then when I watched the 1971 version, there's a scene similar to that, except because there is a black character there. Um, they do acknowledge it. One of them complains. She's like, this is nigger work and it's ruining my hands. I'll never be able to play the harp again. Like, that is her line. It is like the ultimate white privilege. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe I'm doing this. And then, of course, this being, as we already talked about, this being a sort of exploitation uh flick in a way uh hallie the, the the slave she like she instantly just gives it back to her and is like you know like deal with it this is this is what feeds us i'm not going to take this if you have issues with it you can you can die from not you know not having done the work uh and and i, I thought I, I mean it's not like the most perfect way to to you know show the way in which race and 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 all of those hierarchies um existed but i felt like it was m- way more honest than what we see in Coppola's film yeah and and that's that's the thing no depiction is ever going to capture everything or capture the complete truth of everything. But, you know, you would imagine that if you have enough depictions over time, then you can come to some collective truth. <laughs> Agreed. I I would encourage everyone to actually maybe take a look at, I mean, I, I guess I would encourage people to watch the Coppola film. It does have some really beautiful moments and it's interesting. Uh, but I also would encourage folks to listen to watch the original film as well. Um, mm-hmm. do, yeah. you ha- do you have and, any... And if you... Well, I would say also if you can get your hands on the book, the book is worth reading. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it's kind of an interesting take on on this sort of Southern Gothic story, and it's and it's not hard to see why uh, now two directors have been interested in adapting it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts to share with us on this, Corey? I just think, uh, and again, I say this sort of speaking as as a white man. Um, I think that there's there's a tendency amongst white artists to try and excuse themselves because they're worried about backlash uh, on, on these kinds of depictions. And I think that, you know, at some point there needs to be some artistic bravery that just says, we're going to go ahead with it because we want to present, you know, a much wider range of experience on screen and, uh, and, and in art and uh, you know, I hope maybe even Coppola could uh, could do you know improve that in the future. I concur. Well, thank you so much, Corey. It was great to have you on, and we will post a link to Corey's piece and slate on our our show page. Thanks, Corey. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Up next, my interview with filmmaker Nefertiti Nguvu whose feature film In the Morning is now available to stream. We'll put a link to that in our show page. So in it, she explores three storylines around 30-something Black urban professionals living in Brooklyn. There's Cadence, played by Emeyatse Coronaldi, who folks may remember as the star of Ava DuVernay's Middle of Nowhere. She is finally ending a love affair with a married man. There's also a group of friends sending their free-spirited friend off before she moves abroad, and Zuri, a woman coming to terms with her crumbling relationship. Nefertiti discussed the film's pan-African casting and influences, the difficulties of marketing a film aimed squarely at Black sensibilities, and the concept of Black joy. Check it out. Welcome, Nefertiti. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Now, 
before we start, I have to tell you that my middle name is also Nefertiti. Is it? It is. I don't spell it like you. Yeah, but... my parents put that little jazzy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask you, like, what does your name mean? Because uh, my parents, well, were your parents, They were, uh, were they like black American or were mm-hmm. they? Okay. So they were like mine. My dad went through like a, fra- a phase where it was like, I'm going to name my daughters like African names. Yes. Were your parents like that too? Yeah. My parents were both politically active. My dad was actually in a, Amer- I'm from Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. My father was in a Mary Baraka's organization. So the name, family mm-hmm. name actually came from a Mary Baraka. He named, you know, gave us the family name Nguvu. Yes. Um, and my father is a huge jazz fan. So both my sister and I are named after jazz songs. My sister's name is Naima, mm-hmm. John Coltrane. And Nefertiti's and Miles Davis. Davis song. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And then, so the E, they added. And so yeah, that's okay. just blackness. Like, we're going to do this a little different. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, I can totally relate to that, that sort of uh, that background. And so we're here to talk about In the Morning, your, yes. your debut feature film. And this is a movie, it's like, it's kind of like, it's such a cliche to say, but it feels like a sort of love letter to Brooklyn, a love letter to um, what Brooklyn used to be and mm-hmm. also what it means to be like black and, um, <laughs> I was going to say black and bougie, but then I was like, yes, uh, <laughs> but you know, black and cultured mm-hmm. and and educated, um, but also sort of feeling as though you might be um, held back in some ways by wanting to be like to conformity is one of the themes within the film and, mm-hmm. and trying to avoid conformity. So could you talk a little bit about like when you were conceiving of this film, like is there any character because there's a whole cast of characters. You've got, I think, nine mm-hmm. main characters in the film. Is there any character in particular who like sprung to your mind first? You know, I would say Harper is probably the person that came to mind first in terms of the story, you know, I knew that I'd have a limited budget. um, So I was trying to conceive of a story that I could be told over one day. um, And that was sort of an ensemble piece. And so I really wanted to, you know, I loved um, She's Gotta Have It was just sort of like a singular and special work for me still to this day. And I loved how Spike was making work about contemporary black folks. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I thought Nola Darley, like you've never seen anything like her before or since. And so I was just like, I want to make a film that has three women that are like that, you know, three women that are not black women that you often see in films. And so Harper was one of the first women to came to mind because I liked, you know, the sense of writing about someone who felt super free and unencumbered. Um, And all of the women are in transitions. But I think Harper for me is the woman who's like further along in her development um, and so she was someone who was always special to me in terms of writing and wanting to see fully realized and Harper just for listeners like she is uh, she is the one who is going away soon mm-hmm. she's going to have brunch with some friends and she also has a later later on in the movie has a going away party where she's going to was it Paris uh, Brazil Brazil mm-hmm. Brazil. <laughs> Sorry. I got the wrong, like, carefree place to go. She's going to Brazil and she's mm-hmm. going to, like, live and she's, you know, trying to make a new life for herself. And so that's, yeah. And do you, like, do you see yourself in her or do you see other friends that you've had in her um, in terms of, like, have you ever lived abroad? Is that something you've wanted to do? I've never lived abroad. I've traveled pretty extensively, but I've never lived abroad. And it's something that I've always wanted to do. You know, I feel like I see parts of myself in all of the characters. Um, and certainly for Harper, like, I feel like I see so many of the women in my life that don't often get to see themselves in film in Harper. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, you know, you 
live in Brooklyn, so you know how it Sunday brunch and how everyone looks and it's like we don't see that in films. We don't look like that. Wait, can we talk <laughs> about the fashion just for a second? Because the yeah. fashion is kind of I, I do not dress like that. I wish I did. I wish I had that sensibility. But I do know a lot. I have a lot of friends yep. who are just like. So first of all, were those like things? Because I know you're working on a budget. Where this mm-hmm. was that? Were those the type of things that you were like pulling from your own closet or the the actors had from their own closets? Like, what was that like? And like, especially for Harper, like, how did you envision costuming her? Well, that red dress was always something from early on that I saw in my mind for Harper. Like, I just always had this image of her floating down the street in the red dress. And Kim Hill just does it so beautifully mm-hmm. and effortlessly. But costume design was super important to me. Like, I we had amazing costume designers. I'll say first, Nishé Limley and Gary Pridgen. And again, working on a limited budget, a lot of it was between like my closet, Niche's closet, some of the actors brought pieces. You know, Harper's dress we did get made, but <clears throat> outside of that, it was just really putting together the wardrobe based on what was already at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And that was always important to me. It was really, I wanted to have a very particular vision in terms of like what we looked like. You know what I mean? I feel like I wanted to capture like, you know, I feel like I came of age as an artist living in Brooklyn. I went to the School of Visual Arts and when I went there, I was living in Brooklyn, uh, reading and writing poetry around Fort Greene and mm-hmm. a bunch of other places. And it just, you know, that time will always be special to me. And I just wanted to capture that, what that felt like to have a sense of community. And that's sort of what's also happening in the film for these characters is like that sense of community is dissipating. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Brooklyn is in this super state of transition as well. And so they're saying goodbye to Brooklyn in many ways, too. I mean, the the movie is now it's 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 finally made its debut. Uh, it's streaming, mm-hmm. um, but you made this. Well, it, I think it made the festival rounds about three years ago or um, yeah, two years ago. Twenty fourteen was our festival premiere at Urban World, right? Yeah. And so, like, even since then, so much has changed. Oh in my Brooklyn. god! Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, how do you? <laughs> and, and it's funny because now I feel like it's become sort of. We've we're used to seeing now mm-hmm. these 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 ruminations on being black and living in Brooklyn. But like, do you remember at that time, like compared to then and now, even just three years ago, mm-hmm. like how much has it changed? And like, what is the thing you miss most about your time being there that's not here anymore? You know, I miss the sense of culture and the sense of community. I, I feel like. When I lived here, it was like this amazing sort of black planet. You know what I mean? It was just like so many artists, so many beautiful um, brothers and sisters who were like poets or visual artists. There was just like this real strong sense of community and that I feel like made Brooklyn what it was, made it like this desirable place to live. And, you know, unfortunately, so many people who made it what it was are now priced out and unable to live here. And it's so funny, again, getting back to, you know, our our shoot and like having this. So we didn't have enough money to like lock streets off. So a lot of people that you see walking up and down the street are people who were like walking up and down the street. Mm -hmm. It would look totally different today (laughs) if we were (laughs) capturing people who were walking up and down the street. So, you know, I miss that that sense of, you know, blackness that unmolested sense of blackness that, you know, Brooklyn once had. Yeah. Uh, Going back to Harper and these other characters, you have um, Imeyatse Coronaldi, Mm -hmm. who I've loved. She was in Middle of Nowhere, Mm -hmm. um, the Miles Davis movie with uh, Don Cheadle recently. Um, And then you have the third woman, whose name I'm blanking on. Deidre Aziza. Deidre Aziza, thank Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) And the three of them, but especially... Emiatsu's character and Kim's character, Harper, they are 
like on a quest for happiness Mm -hmm. and they're being told by the people that they love that, you know, they're aiming too high or they're Mm -hmm. they're being frivolous and imaginary and like they're not living in the real world. Like, yeah, you can like try to search for love, but like be practical about these things. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like I mean, I feel like now we have this we're living in this age where we have hashtags like, you know, carefree black girl, mm-hmm. black girls rock that are sort of encouraging women and black women to mm-hmm. to be more. And I don't know if we could ever be truly carefree. Right. But to, like, <laughs> that's I, a whole other conversation. Right, that's a whole right. other conversation. <laughs> but to put yourself first more and mm-hmm. put your emotions more in the forefront as opposed to putting like obligations in the mm-hmm. forefront. Do you feel as though we're moving in that direction to where like these characters Harper mm-hmm. and the other characters are? Like what are you seeing now um within your world? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that now more than ever it's part of our conversation. You know, self-care mm-hmm. is something that we discuss openly and you know there are so many different blogs and people who just, you know, I, I think taking care of oneself um especially I think about, you know, I was also politically active when I was like a young college student. And I think about how there was no conversation around those things, you Mm -hmm. know, back in in that time, you know, now it's totally different. And I think it's important because, you know, we have to, you know, if we are the ones who are doing uh, a tremendous amount of work in order to change our society, we have to take we have to be able to do that. And we have to take care of ourselves in order to be able to function to do that. And so I love that that's part of the conversation now. And mm-hmm. you're right, like you said, well, there's really no such thing as a hashtag carefree black girl when you think about what we're up against in the world. But I think that there's certainly, you know, room for us to be able to take care of ourselves and to be able to put our needs essentially first, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think Deidre Aziza's character, Zuri, I mean, just for our listeners, she's going through sort of a very emotional period Mm -hmm. with her partner um, who has not been as supportive as she wants him to be. um, And I don't it's not a spoiler to say that she finds out she's pregnant and she's like trying to figure out what to do about Mm -hmm. this baby. Um, Her her story was like the saddest Mm -hmm. part of this. I mean, what do you what like, can you talk a little bit about the creation of that character and sort of what because you never actually see her with any of the other characters, Mm -hmm. um, Harper and the rest of their friends. She misses out on the brunch to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about just like the conception of her and like she to me seems to symbolize that idea that like we can't ever truly be Mm -hmm. carefree. I think um, going into this, writing about people who were in their 30s and not about people who were like in their 20s was super important to me. I think that all of them are in a place in their life where they're kind of measuring up to like what they thought their life was going to be and what their life actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think for Zuri, that is really, really, really profoundly hitting her at this moment and having to make this decision about whether or not to terminate a pregnancy <clears throat> really is, you know, for her about being stuck in this place and being forced to decide, like, which way she wants to go and who she wants to become next. You know Mm. what I mean? And so I feel like for both Zuri and Leo, um, one of the reasons why they're mostly shot in this apartment is because we wanted to give a feeling that they're sort of 
trapped. Oh, it felt so claustrophobic. Yeah. I, I definitely got that feeling. And it's so much, it's shot more darkly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. handheld. Most of our other shots are locked off. Their mm-hmm. stuff is mostly handheld because we wanted to give that sense of tension of being right there, peeking in on this couple. And I think, you know, she's at this point in time where, you know, she's sort of been going on autopilot and just sort of like triaging her life and doing what needs to be done. And now she's sort of has to do something and she has to make a very specific choice about which direction her life wants to go in. Why do you always do this to me? I rush home so that we can talk and now you won't talk to me? And I just have to sit here being held hostage until you decide you want to talk. Rush? You want to talk? Talk. Don't start telling me what I've already done wrong. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I've been here less than five minutes, but somehow I've already failed. Please don't start this shit. I'm not holding you hostage. I just need a minute, okay? And I also think of her as someone who has made a lot of sacrifices or just let a lot of things that she may have wanted slide by the wayside. And so now it's like, okay, it is time for you to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that really struck myself and Verilyn as well, um, <laughs> I'm going to shout you out because this yeah. is your, your your thoughts. But like one of the great things is that it seamlessly incorporates so many different kinds of black people mm-hmm. from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Like you have actor and actor from Angola, another one from uh, Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. Um were you did you have that intention when writing it or was it just sort of the way casting fell like you just found the actors who you wanted to or was this like something you wanted to portray it was just like how many different places we all come from well you know i i think that i certainly when i was writing in terms of like approaching character i wasn't necessarily thinking about um where in the diaspora each different character was going to come from it's just fortunate that our cast was put together in that way but it was super important to me to show sort of like the multitudes of who we are and that Mm -hmm. we're not this monolithic group and that we don't all look the same way and even in you know the ways that our characters are dressed like their outfits aren't interchangeable they're all very specific to who they are and so it was really important to me to us um to paint these specific portraits of black folks that you don't always get to see that really kind of showcase different variations, different shades, different hues, different versions mm-hmm. of who we are. Yeah. So can you talk a bit, We, I mean, we briefly mentioned it at the beginning, but can you talk a bit more about like your personal background and mm-hmm. how you came into filmmaking? Like your parents, you said, were, were very political, but mm-hmm. were they supportive of you? like entering into the filmmaking world? You know, I my parents always surrounded us with the arts, you know, from a young age. It was always uh, poetry readings mm-hmm. and um, jazz concerts and Sweet Honey and the Rock concerts mm-hmm. and like all these, um, like art was super important to my parents um, just in terms of cultural enrichment. Um, I think that they were happy when I decided to but they were also scared you know what Mm. I mean because you want your child to have a sense of security in life and lord knows there's no real sense of that when you decide to pursue your passion as an artist but I think you know I'm just I've been 
once I decided to do it, I was always serious about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's one thing I always say to like artists, like if you, if this is something it's no, it's not going to be easy. Right. And if you want to do it, you have to be serious about it and you have to have the grit to sort of see something through to the end. You know what I mean? Even with this project, it's taken a lot of grit to get it from page to screen, from screen to festivals and from festivals now out on video. And like, it's hard work. It's not right. just like, ooh, I want to show up and be glamorous mm-hmm. and tell people what to do on set. It's just like so much hard work that goes into it. And so I think when my parents saw that I was also serious in, in that regard. They were super, super, super supportive. My mom comes to like all of our screenings. <laughs> it's really been a, a, a huge advocate of mine. I, and I fell in love with art because of my parents for sure. Like I remember um, in Newark, New Jersey, like I said, where I'm from, there's a festival called the Newark Black Film Festival. And I saw Gordon Parks' film, The Learning Tree there. I love that movie. Yeah. And it was yeah. like I saw that when I was a little girl and it just like really changed me. And I felt in that moment that I wanted to be a filmmaker like I had no idea what that meant like I but you know it, I knew that, that it's something a world that I wanted to be a part of so I credit all of that to my parents let's talk a bit about that hard work because I think I think especially people who don't work in the industry mm-hmm. they don't realize how <laughs> if you're not like you know even Spike Lee obviously still mm-hmm. has to sometimes crowdfund his yeah. movies um and which is crazy it, which is crazy mm-hmm. um but especially like as a woman and as a woman of color mm-hmm. it's like even more difficult so can you talk a little bit about like what it took for you to get the movie to where it is now like explain exactly like what it was like to try to pitch this idea mm-hmm. because also pitching and trying to get people to give you money mm-hmm. it's like you're going up you're people of color and women are often considered not marketable Mm -hmm. and so there's that hurdle Mm -hmm. so can you talk a bit about just like how what it was like for you to pitch this to to people what the responses were and then like how you just grind it until you got to where (laughs) we are now (laughs) yeah let me get my violin out (laughs) (laughs) look it's it's a tough road but like the fact that you do it and you're you don't sound like you're like a trust fund kid. So no, like you, it's like, you know, you have yeah, to work to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. But you know the thing about it, and I will certainly get into sort of like the behind the scenes and the work, but the thing that because it is not an easy um, process at all, but the thing that keeps me going, that gets me out of bed in the morning, even when it's difficult, is thinking about the people that I make films for. You know what I mean? Like I say like if this was about me, I would have given up a long time ago because it is really challenging. But I think about about, you know, the people who come up to, to me after they see the film or the people who write to us after they watch the film and how it's affected them or how they loved seeing themselves reflected in a different way. Like, that's what keeps me going. You mm-hmm. know, I think about how the art that I love affected me and really shaped my consciousness because that's what we're talking about here. With filmmaking, like cinema, is a powerful tool okay. and it really can yeah. help shape someone's consciousness. And so, it's thinking about those bigger ideas that really, really keeps me motivated to push through when it's challenging. And in terms of our process with this film, you know, 
I didn't pitch this film to a Hollywood studio. We raised funds on Kickstarter because I like no one. There's no Hollywood studio that I know of that's in a rush to tell stories about the interior lives of black women. You know what I mean? So I always feel like I say that I went to the community for the green light because this film exists because our community said, "Okay, mm-hmm. we'll contribute to your Kickstarter campaign. And outside of the Kickstarter campaign, we also had some other grassroots fundraisers that happened. I dipped into my own savings and credit cards to get the film made. Um, and then after that process, you know, we had enough to get the film in the can. And then after that, it took me like two years in post to be able to finish the film. I had to like stop working on it, get a real job so I could raise more money, you know, uh-huh. do all these things to get, you know, us from in the can to a finished product that we can show at film festivals. And then we spent two years on the film festival circuit, um, like as we premiered at Urban World in 2014. And then after that, we went to a bunch of other different f- film festivals. We played internationally. We filmed Screen in Paris and in Rome and in Siena and Johannesburg. And so after that, it was like, okay, beyond film festivals, I would like people to be able to see this work. You know what I mean? Because I made this work not just for the people who go to film festivals. I want everyday folks to be able to see it and to experience the film. I mean, that's the thing, right? I feel like a lot of these types of films get stuck just like Mm -hmm. popping up Mm -hmm. one-off performances, Mm -hmm. um, which can be really sad because then like how how do you get it out there you know what and i want to say this too i saw this film called losing ground by kathleen collins i saw that for the first time at bam uh my last or february um because it's really hard to find yes and i saw it when lincoln center was playing it when they unearthed those like treasure trove of black films that like you who that had gotten buried that never received wide distribution and i literally after i saw this film i like bald crying because mm-hmm. I was just like I felt robbed of the experience of having seen this film as like a young filmmaker as yeah. a black woman to see that a black woman in the 80s was making the types of films that I want to be making now that there's a precedent for this it's just like it just really fueled me to be like okay this work cannot be buried we can't we we have to do what we can to get it out here and yeah. so I stopped waiting for the perfect distributor to come along. We had some few, a few offers come our way, but none that I felt like they either were completely inequitable or I felt like would never really give our film a chance to connect with our audience. And so I did an additional Kickstarter campaign mm. um, to raise funds to do direct-to-audience distribution to get our film on some online um, platforms. And that's, that's how we came to be. That's how our film is now available worldwide. <sighs> that's, that's uh, yeah. Uh, have you I mean you've made this you talked about like making this film for like people who want to see themselves Mm -hmm. Um, what is sort of have you I'm imagining it's not just black people have Mm -hmm. seen it what has been the response from those who if you've heard any responses Mm -hmm. like to from people who are not black yeah you know like it's funny so our film is played internationally and Mm -hmm. so we did this festival called like in Terra di Siena, which is like this small festival in Tuscany, Italy. So there were very few people of color there. And it's like there it's like the audience just loved it. It was like a subtitle in Italian. Mm-hmm. And there was this group of women that like literally any time Malik came on screen, they would be like cracking up about I was like, clearly there is an Italian Malik running around these streets. <laughs> So that's the thing about making work like this. It's like through the specificity, Mm -hmm. 
is the universal. You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like love is universal. Love connects all of us. You know what I mean? But it's through the specific story of these folks that you find what is universally true. And just for our listeners, Malik uh, in the movie, uh, he's cheating on his wife uh, with Imayatsi's character. You, I hate that you think that, that I don't care about you. That you're the only one who's felt anything. I love my wife. Yeah, yeah, I do. Kaders, I'm crazy about you. I mean, he's he's the type who kind of like has these excuses about, well, I, I love both of you, or I care for both of you, but I could never leave my wife. Like, <laughs> but which is like that that there's an Italian one, there's, yeah. there's an American one, there's a Mexican one, there's right. like they Canadian, everywhere. they're everywhere. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. And that's so true, the the universality of all of that. Yeah. Oh man. That that's great that that like that was Cuz we're all human. So yeah. we're all selfish. We all have, you know, he's duplicitous just because he's selfish and right. he's really looking out for his own needs and that is universal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the film nerd in me cuz I think you're a, you seem like a film nerd as well, obviously. <laughs> uh, I want to know like what are your sort of like favorite stories to tell and then also what kind of like what are your favorite shots or like mm-hmm. what are the 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 sort of scenes that you like to craft within your filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I love film nerd conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, I would say my favorite filmmaker is Ingmar Bergman. Like, I mm. love Bergman films. Yeah. I love the intimacy of the stories that he tells. Um, so for me, I think that's something that's super important to me, too. Um, I'm a fan of Spike Lee's work, too. Mm-hmm. Woody Allen's early films I'm a huge fan of as well. Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust like rearranged my entire life mm-hmm. and everything that I thought a film could be. So she's certainly someone who's always high up on my list. And that Losing Ground was really, really remarkable um, to me, too. And Bertolucci's The Conformist is up there on uh-huh. my list, too. I, I really like I. I experienced that film like over and over again. I remember the first time I saw it in film school and I was just like, just blown away. Yeah. And to this day, still love it. Yeah. So for me, I'm really, 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 really attracted to telling like those really intimate stories. I, that was what I was going to say. It's like very, um, yes, intimate, uh, close, close ups and, mm-hmm. and very revealing mm-hmm. Um conversations it's funny that you mentioned losing ground because like when i was watching your film that's that's actually kind of what i thought of is like these same sort of conversations that they have in losing ground and mm-hmm. in, in which you know the lead character like it's it's a movie for those who i, I imagine a lot of people haven't seen it because it's really hard to find yeah. but it's it's about you know black intellectuals and uh, uh, she the lead character uh, is a professor um and you know, her and her husband are like, they go through a rough patch, mm-hmm. but then they also have these like wildly philosophical conversations mm-hmm. about like art and life. It's and, amazing. Like, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and the, it reminded me a bit of, of your film as well, because they're like, they're having these same very deep conversations about like what, 
like and not even just about it's not explicitly about being black it's just about mm-hmm. like what do you want out of life yeah it's like we have existential crises too like exactly else. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can we can dig into our pathos as much as exactly. as the italians can exactly you know. yeah. and that's why i felt when i saw losing ground it's like I, I like i said i like always name bergman high on my list but i felt like i met my birth mother when i saw yeah. <laughs> losing ground it's like wow i i sprang from this tree and i didn't even know it you yeah know? And it's so sad to me that that was the only film she completely only feature film she completed because she she passed she away. passed away from yeah. cancer even yeah. i think before the film had it never really had a formal release right um, right right so anyway real listeners if you can try to find that movie absolutely uh, wherever it's playing <laughs> and you also have in addition to you know, this film and the other projects you're working on, you have the production company, Hollywood Africans. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like what, like what that um, company's goal is and why the name Hollywood Africans? <laughs> I mean, it seems like a really, but like, I imagine there's a significance to it. Yeah. Well, certainly. I mean, obviously, it's the it's a title of a Basquiat um, painting that I really love. But that title just always stuck out to me just because I feel like it merges my world. Having mm-hmm. grown up um, with super political parents and grown up in this, like, pan-African environment and this environment that so much emphasis was placed on African culture and your roots and knowing who you are and where you come from. And then also wanting to be a filmmaker from a very early age and wanting to be a part of that world, too. So I feel like Hollywood African sort of merges, you know, the collective pieces of my consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where that came from. And that's that's why that kind of stuck for me. Um, And my ultimate, you know, even though now it exists to produce the work that I'm making, ultimately, what I hope for it is that I'll be in a position to produce the works of other filmmakers of color, um, black women in particular. You know, I feel like there are so many incredible things that are happening right now for black women storytellers, but I would love to see that magnified and amplified. I know so many amazing sisters who are out here making incredible beautiful startling work that just don't have the opportunity to get it out there i mean not everybody is built for the five-year journey that it took for us to see in the morning through to the end and so i hope to be in a position to make it a little bit easier for filmmakers like me and so that we can merge you know the work that we're doing and be able to connect it with audience because that's where i think the future is i think it happened um in the music industry, you know, you see that happening so much, you know, how that really shifted mm-hmm. um, the music industry when artists started making work that they can deliver directly to their audience. Right, like Chance. Yeah, I mean, he's probably the most famous. Absolutely. And even yeah. Frank Ocean, what Frank Ocean is doing right now, yeah. I'm in awe of. And mm-hmm. even his position on the Grammys and not, I'm just like, I'm just in awe of him yeah. and what he stands for. And I feel like that's where the future is for filmmakers in terms of being able to cut out that middleman cut out that sort of permission-based, you know, having to pitch to people who have no idea about the stories that you're telling. And I think audiences are leaning that way, too. I mean, we've seen this year films that would never traditionally be thought of as commercially viable do very well at the box office. So I think there is a shift that's happening now, and I hope to continue to be a part of that shift and to make it easier for filmmakers and for um, black women filmmakers in particular. Mm -hmm. Aside from working with Hollywood Africans and, and now that this film is out, like what's next for you? Like, what do you, where do you hope to be? Um, what do you hope to be working on uh, in the next like two to three years? Well, what's next for me 
specifically is I have a couple of short pieces that I'm working on, um, some narrative shorts coming out. But, you know, in the next couple of years, I hope to be able to make another feature um, and to not take five years to get <laughs> to get it out. Yeah. <laughs> the, the goal is that each time, you know, there'll be a fewer and fewer barriers so yeah. that, you know, it's not this boulder you're, <laughs> you're pushing yeah. uphill. It's like making the work, you know, the creative process is what's so rewarding and enriching and fun. But it's like all the work you have to do in order to get to that part yeah. is, I think, what counts a lot of us out you know what I mean it's just like I know so many incredibly talented people that just don't have the stomach for all the other stuff that it takes in order to see some things through and so that's why it's so important for me to say okay I know that I have the grit to be able to do this but I don't want to just be in a position where I'm doing it for myself I want to be able to be a vessel of change and to be able to help other artists that I feel like you know shouldn't be this hard <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and you want to you know have that you know to, to make it easier to because it's like for the ones because it is not easy the ones of us who are doing this usually are doing this for the greater good for the higher purpose for the calling for that you know that sense of deep and true connection to our work and to the people that we're making it for and so we hope in order you know we hope to be a path to make that um, easier for folks. Do you have any like aspirations to get to Hollywood or to even just get to TV? Is that something that you like think about at all, or are you cool with like just staying making things that are that are more like directly speaking to the community? Well, I think I, in terms of. Hollywood, I feel like I certainly would like to be working with more resources mm-hmm. right. <laughs> for sure. And so whatever version that comes in, I, I welcome that. But I it's important to me to make the work that I'm making and to make work that's meaningful for sure. And so if there's a version of that that is able to happen with more resources, <laughs> I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but does that mean I'll stop making work? If it doesn't, no. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> no, I, I I don't get that sense from you at all. Um, yeah. So, the final question I have for you is: When is the last time you saw something on TV and film um, that you weren't a part of, mm-hmm. in which you felt as if you saw yourself in that film? You could relate. You could understand what that film is trying to do or what a character was going through? Mm. You know, I think the last film that I saw that really sort of like shook me to my core in the way that, you know, I'd love for films to do was Adorami Sasko's Timbuktu. Oh, yes. Did you see that? I did. I saw it when it uh, when it first came out a, f- a couple years ago. Okay. And then it was nominated. I don't remember if it won. It, it, did, it did. I don't think it won, but, but it, was it was nominated. For yeah. Best Foreign Film. Yeah. Yeah. And he's someone whose work I deeply, deeply admire. And I, I saw the film um, twice. And the second time that I saw it, it was at um, the Bronzelands Film Festival in Atlanta. And he was there. And... I just found myself in the audience like bawling, crying between the connection I felt to the world that he created and being in the presence of his connection as an artist to the work that he was making and why he was making this work about, you know, this place that he comes from 
it just really moved me and it just really shook me. And it was like, you know, it's such a reminder of like, this is why we do this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And even him who's, you know, all his work goes to like Khan and he's this like world renowned filmmaker. He was talking about how challenging it is to get films made and how he had to move back to Africa. He left Paris because it was hard to pay the rent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, it really, it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but if making the work that's important to you, um, whether or not it's financially re- lucrative, um, that it's changing lives, that it's having this profound effect on people, that it's shaping the way people are viewing this part of our contemporary world history matters tremendously. And so we push on. That's a great answer. I need to rewatch that film. It's been, yeah, I haven't seen it since it came out. It's but really I, amazing. I do remember feeling just like, I, I think I remember the way I felt more than I remember what actually happened. Yeah, that's when you know a, a film yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, Ugh. It, like you said, it shook. It shook me too. Like mm-hmm. it. And yes, I, I highly recommend everyone see yeah. that film. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nefertiti. It was so great to talk to oh, you. Thank you for having me. This and, was a pleasure. Yeah, and just keep grinding. Like, do what you do because it's it's good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And that is all. Thank you all for listening. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams, and our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. Our intro and outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And guess what? We are on Instagram now. You can follow us at Slate Represent. I am going to be posting more there probably than I do on my own personal Instagram because I just don't do social media well. But yeah, you can look for us. We'll have pictures, Insta stories, all that fun stuff. You should totally do it. (laughs) Until next time. 